On this episode, we are joined by a pharmacy student in her fourth year of pharmacy school, and we are talking COPD. Stay tuned. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Core Console RX podcast. I'm Mike Corvino. I'm here, as always, with Cole Swanson, and we have a special, special guest today, Miss April Driscoll, soon to be Dr. April Driscoll. April, what's up? Not much. I'm excited to be here with you guys tonight. Cole, how's your week going? It's good. It's cold. It's snowing. Yeah, so in Charleston. We're in Charleston, South Carolina, and it snowed. It was, it was pretty miserable because none of us know how to deal with the snow down here. We don't know how to drive in it. We all crash. Yeah, for all of you who haven't been paying attention to the East Coast, it's pretty crazy. It's been bad. I left for a week, and y'all ruined the place. <laughs> so, uh, April, which rotation are you on right now? I am on Mike's rotation. Yeah, she's on my rotation, so I'm making her do a podcast for this. <laughs> I've had one day so far. Yes, thanks to the snow, our rotation has been a little bit limited, but it's okay. We'll make up for it and hopefully have a good time. Cole, what are you on this month? Uh, on a name care rotation, actually, at the VA. How's that going? It's been good. I've enjoyed it. But, uh, anything interesting going on? Uh, we do mostly anticoag, and um, then she works with... Uh, home-based primary care, which the nurses go out and see them at their home, and she does the MedRex for them and writes notes, makes recommendations. So Very cool. That's pretty cool. April, what kind of uh, rotations have you had so far? I've had a wide variety of rotations. My favorite ones so far have been kind of in the community setting and am care, and I'm looking forward to working with you in the community as well. <laughs> oh, it's going to be the best. So um, what uh, so far, since you obviously haven't had mine yet, so you can't say it's the best, even though it will be. What uh, what has been your favorite rotation so far that you've kind of gone through? My favorite rotation was working in the Coumadin Clinic at MUSC so far. Um, I had two two rotations in a row that were working in the Coumadin Clinic. And so I had the opportunity to practice that every single day. And then when I went into my second rotation, I had a lot of autonomy to make recommendations myself and see patients and go ahead and get to know them and make recommendations for them. Um, so I really enjoyed that. And I liked having scheduled time with each patient. Yeah, I agree. Cole, did you, you liked your care stuff as well? Yeah, so far, no, right? it was really good. Um, I had it at a clinic down here in um in charleston on james island and we did a lot with diabetes patients so the anticoag is a little new for me uh but working with the diabetes patients is i, I really enjoy that that's that was mine so yeah it makes it and i know from my experience with the the diabetes program that i'm associated with here in charleston i think my time where i get to spend 30 minutes to sometimes an hour with these patients one-on-one -on -one, it, it makes a huge difference and they really get a lot out of it, having that one-on-one -on -one interaction. Physicians have so much going on. They have so many patients they have to see that they don't always get to spend as much time as they'd want to. So it's nice having that connection you can kind of build with a patient, spending one-on-one -on -one time with them, making sure other questions or concerns or whatever are answered. So I, I think AmCare is a fantastic realm of practice for pharmacists, and I think it's going to grow pretty big too. I, I think it's just going to get bigger and bigger each year. Yeah, and AmCare is primary care or family medicine for um, those who may be confused about that. But yeah, pharmacists play a big role in that for sure. 
Yeah. If you're a student listening to this and you're in pharmacy school, I would highly suggest you doing a couple AMCARE rotations while uh, you're on your fourth year rotations or third year, depending on what school you're at. But um, I definitely definitely think there's a lot of value in that, a lot to be learned. On a side note, I think I got an email the other day that um, pharmacists, the provider status le- legislation, has gone through the House of Representatives. It's got the votes in the Senate, and it just needs the votes in Congress, if I'm not mistaken. So it's in the pipeline for you guys. There will be some exciting ways for us to get reimbursed in the near future, hopefully. So stay tuned. Yeah, for sure. I'm really excited to see how that kind of all plays out. So... Um, you know, you've gotten to know Cole and I, everybody listening for the last couple episodes. April, what uh, what made you want to become a pharmacist? I've always been interested in healthcare and love having opportunities to help other people. I am not huge on all of the gross and bloody things in life, so pharmacy is the perfect place for me. Pharmacists are the most accessible healthcare providers, um, and we can have our patients for their entire lives and see them throughout their lives, and then they can come in with their children, and I really love that connection that we can have um, and the accessibility that we have in in the community setting. That's awesome. So what kind of practice setting do you see yourself in once you kind of graduate and finish up? Yeah, I expect to be working in the community pharmacy right after graduation and would like to really just expand my roles in the pharmacy to take on more clinical responsibilities and help manage patients right from a community pharmacy. Um, I think that there's lots of opportunities partnering with physicians and working with patients directly to care for them from the convenience of a community pharmacy. Yeah, I agree. I think that uh, we will start seeing that model pop up a lot more, especially in the next five years or so, uh, maybe a little bit longer. But it always takes a little bit, you know, a little bit of time to kind of adjust and change. But uh, I think that that model of having community pharmacists be there, being a member of the healthcare team, but just very accessible. It just is where the, where pharmacy has to go. Um, the, this idea where we're going to be dispensing medications, I feel like is a little, a uh, little short-sighted. I, I think if robots can build cars, they certainly can put pills in a bottle. So I think that, um, community pharmacists are going to play a much bigger role here very, very soon. And I think it's a, a area that kind of gets overlooked sometimes. I think if, if some of these sometimes community pharmacies tend to kind of uh, labeled as second tier or not as important because there's not always as, as strict of residencies or things like that that are required. But I think that you're going to start seeing a much higher caliber community pharmacist here very soon. Right. We do a lot more than dispense. Yes. And it's a mindset. And you guys have heard me say this if you've listened to any of my other material. Um, it's kind of, it's just a complete mindset. Do you want to be a robot and stand there and put pills in a bottle or do you want to practice pharmacy and work with patients and help them? There's plenty of people who can make a six figure salary and literally stand there and be a robot and just check medication and not speak to patients at all. Unfortunately, they're out there, but I think that eventually process of supply and demand is going to get to the point where it kind of weeds those people out. Agreed. So what's the plan for today, Mike? What are we talking about? All right. So today we're going to do another patient case. Mm-hmm. So this number two. One, uh, number two. So again, we'll have this patient case uploaded on the website. And uh, this one, again, is going to be pretty basic, but 
It's going to give us a chance to, to talk about COPD for a little bit. And um, this one's going to be pretty basic, but we'll, uh, I think probably after this one, we'll start getting a little bit more in depth with some of these cases. But the point of them is to really show how we can utilize evidence-based medicine mm-hmm. during an actual patient case and what we would do uh, differently versus just picking treatment options at random or right. following just a set guideline. Right. And what our thought process is when we're picking those and when we look at these types of patients. Um, but yeah, like you said, we're talking about COPD, which just to orient you, it hasn't always been COPD. It hasn't always been called that. And it's really a relatively um, new diagnosis. Obviously, it's been around for a long time, but just taking us back in our little time machine. Mike, have you ever heard of Theophil Bonnet? No. Theophil Bonnet. So this, that's a male, uh, and it was a physician, a Swiss physician back in 1679. He first identified a uh, condition which he called voluminous lungs. Uh, about 90 years later, an Italian named Giovanni Morgagna, or Giovanni Morgagni, uh, reported 19 cases of what he called turgid lungs. So obviously not calling it COPD. It wasn't until a little later on in 1814 that a British physician named Charles Charles Bradham identified chronic bronchitis. And just a few years later, someone identified emphysema, and that was actually the inventor of the stethoscope, a uh, physician named Rene Lenec. So I thought that was pretty interesting. So it wasn't until the early 1800s, so the early 19th century, that we really got this diagnosis of COPD, and it's really carried on uh, to today. Smoking wasn't always associated with COPD. That came in the late 20th century. Um, back then, it was mostly environmental factors that they thought about, so... That's what we're going to be emphasizing. The patient case is going to have a couple of other uh, comorbidities, but we'll be um, focusing more in on COPD as we go through it. That's cool, man. I like. Uh, I've never heard really the got history some, of that. Got some yeah. trivia, some COPD, COPD trivia for yeah. you. So. Questions coming soon. Yeah. Can you just be our historian from now sure. on? Sure. That should be like a whole new Why thing not? for you. Yeah. We just got a new segment. Yeah. There the history go. of whatever it is you yes. say we happen to be talking about. I like that. A lot of repeat. <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> That's good, man. I like that. That's cool. April, what do you think? COPD, ready to jump into it? Let's go. All right. So patient is CK. She is a 67-year-old African-American female. She has a history of COPD and also has a history of hypertension and gout. She has a current CAT score of 8 when we assessed her with a CAT questionnaire. Um, if you're not familiar with that as well, that is another tool. This is totally a side note, and I'll go back to the case. That is a tool that, speaking of community pharmacists, we can use as well. And so not that you're going to be able to necessarily be in the clinic and alter medications or make changes, but if you have copies of the CAT score or have the ability to have the patient fill out the CAT score questionnaire, you can give that to the patient tell them to fill it out on their own time, and then bring that with them for their follow-up with either their primary care physician or their pulmonologist, whoever's managing their COPD. And, you know, that they, they gives you an opportunity to play a role in that patient's care. And I, I would be willing to bet that there's plenty of physicians out there that would be uh, pretty impressed if you took the initiative and, and gave the patient that to kind of give them sort of a, a initial understanding of why we do these questionnaires and then um, the importance of how it's it can give us kind of a way to quantify, I guess is what I'm trying to say, right. quantify the, the 
the changes in the person's COPD. Right, and it's it's good to understand just in general for any provider, it's uh, an, essentially an assessment of breathlessness, and so they're gonna. Um, it's only eight questions. It's pretty simple, but it has the patient rank them on a scale from one to five. How much they cough, um, how much mucus they're coughing up, whether their chest feels tight, a few other things like that, so you can kind of accurately assess the progression of their COPD. And it factors in pretty heavily to the goal guidelines, which we'll talk about in choosing treatment therapy from there. Yeah, so what uh, what else was this young lady? We had, she had a past history of smoking. She has currently stopped. Uh, she was doing a pack per day for 10 years, but has been cigarette-free for the past five years. So that is excellent. So hopefully we're, you know, slowing down the progression of COPD just with the quitting of the daily use of cigarettes. It's basically the number one recommendation is um, going ahead and getting them off of cigarettes, stopping the smoking, and yeah, that helps significantly. Yeah. And so she had a uh, exacerbation a few months ago and she was discharged on the same medications that she came into the hospital with because she was uh, hospitalized briefly and she was taking at the time Advair inhalers uh, 250 per 50 and then also Pro-Air and she's using the Pro-Air just as needed it was scheduled every six hours is what she could use Um, she doesn't always use it around the clock like that but uh, she can take it up to every six hours and it hasn't changed a whole lot since she's been out of the hospital, but she did have an exacerbation of uh, about three months ago where she was hospitalized. So we're going to call her uh, Group C. Yeah, uh, according I would agree. To the, the goal guidelines, um, their little algorithm that they have that was updated in 2017. So the first thing I kind of want to jump into is where, where if we ideally, if we were starting this this woman on medication, where would her first treatment option fall? So she's first, on Advair, so... Right, so she's on uh, Advair, is fluticasone and salmeterol, so she's on an ICS LABA. Um, but if you looked at the 2017 update of the gold guidelines, if they're in group C, you can go ahead and just start on one, so a LAMA. Um, and what's the reason? Why do, they, why do they recommend starting on a LAMA first? So the and if the other interesting thing is the llama is actually highlighted in green. That's the yeah. one they, they recommend to start with if you're in group C. And then the reason for that, in, in, if you look at group B, which is a little bit less severe, there is a LABA or a llama. They don't really specify a recommendation. You can choose either one. But when you move to that group C, a little bit higher uh, risk for exacerbations, a little bit further, more progression with the disease state, then LAMA is preferred. And the reason for that is the POET trial. Um, POET compared salmeterol directly to teotropium, and their primary outcome was looking at exacerbations and then time to exacerbation. And so what they found was that there wasn't as much of a difference between LAMA and LAMA in the patients that weren't as progressed in their COPD, but these patients that would kind of fall into this group C category, uh, they did have a benefit. And I believe the number needed to treat was 13. Yeah, it was really low. 13 to prevent one exacerbation over one year, um, starting a LAMA versus a LABA. So that's why these goal guidelines in 2017 updated, because they used to just have, okay, if you're on this, then you can either add this or switch to this. And it just was very generic. You could kind of pick and choose where you wanted to go. And these are set up in a way that you are picking a llama ideally if you're following their recommend recommendations 
Um, so for her, we could, you know, either switch to a llama by itself mm-hmm. and we could switch to, if we wanted to be evidence-based, we could do just plain Spiriva teotropium, uh, which also comes with the Respimat inhaler. Um, the other the other thing we could try is something like uh, Tudorza, which mm-hmm. is twice daily dosing, so I'm not as big of a fan of that. Uh, there's also in, in cruise. There's an ellipta. Yeah, that's once a day. Yeah, so that'd be an option. And also Seabree. Seabree, so, like a pyrolase, yeah. the other new one on the market. We're relatively new at this point. Right. But yeah, so I mean, this, this and this lady is one of those things. It's it's kind of hard because she's already been on Advair for a while. Mm-hmm. So we could just switch her over and just kind of assess and see if she has another exacerbation. Or, switch her over to the llama. To a llama, yeah, it would it would be my suggestion. If she's coming to us for the first time, I would say a llama would be easier, and it's something she can take once a day, depending on which one we use. And she's not stuck using Advair twice a day, and then having to rinse her mouth out because right. of the ICS component. Yeah. So you know, there's just less worry about some of the side effects. And as long as she's willing to use a new medication, and we can get it covered by our insurance, then I think a llama would be a better option for her at this point. Right. And so what's the other option in group C if we didn't want to do a llama? Maybe she's had an exacerbation. She was on Advair and instead of going to the llama, which is only a single, it's a single medication, which some might think is a step down, but ultimately not exactly. But if we wanted to step her up and be a little more aggressive, maybe she has a lot of symptoms, what would, what would be the next option? So according to the guidelines, there's two different options you can go. Uh, you can either switch to a llama lava or you can switch to a LABA ICS, which is what she's been on. Right. Um, the interesting thing about the new guidelines is that the LAMA LABA is actually highlighted in green. And the reason for that is because they've studied that comparison as well um, with the FLAME trial. Mm-hmm. Um, you want to go into that, Cole? Sure. Um, so the FLAME trial was basically, they looked, they compared the LAMA LABA to a LABA ICS. And I think specifically they used Udebron brand name, which is Indicatorol and uh, glycoperineum or glycopyrrolate as the lava llama, and then they compared it to Advair, so what we're talking about, uh, which is the lava ICS, the salmeterol fluticasone. Um, and so basically they were looking at patients who were fairly severe, um, and instead of just looking at the time to event, they were at, or time to first um, exacerbation or hospitalization, they were looking at um, CPD exacerbations in general time to first exacerbation was a secondary outcome. But the primary outcome was, um, does it decrease exacerbations in general? Um, and it did significantly. So the lava llama was superior to the lava ICS in terms of um, reducing CBT exacerbations. Um, I don't have a number needed to treat for that, but I think it was pretty good because they had, um, as far as secondary outcomes, time to first exacerbation was lower. Um, the rates of moderate and severe exacerbations, there was an improvement in FEV1, uh, more significantly in the llama lava group. Um, so overall, they did a direct comparison, and it looked pretty good. Yeah. So honestly, I think with this lady, if we were going to switch anything, I would probably say let's go ahead and just switch her to a lava, llama lava, okay, and do the combo because she's already been in the lava ICS. Right. We have direct head-to-head comparisons. She's had an exacerbation in the last couple months. Like, I think if I would be comfortable switching her to a, a llama lava and then assessing for further exacerbations right. at that point. Right. Go ahead and get on top of it. And then if something else happens, we can always re- you know, re- reserve the ICS for last, basically. So, right. Yeah. Um, the other, 
you know, if we were going to do evidence-based, obviously Udebron, the Indicatorol, and like a Pyrolite. Um, but there's also on the market, there's the Enora and Alepta. Mm-hmm. There is, uh, let's see, Stylto, mm-hmm. um, which is, uh, what is it? Teotropium and, and the um, Oladaterol. Oladaterol, that's mm-hmm. right. And uh, there's also Bevespi. Bevespi. So that would be the right. blacker power latent for Motorol if you wanted those two. So Bevespi was the, what do they call the inhaler? The Aerosphere? Yeah. I was so disappointed because that's such a cool name. Mm-hmm. And then when I got my Aerosphere in the mail, I I'm was impressed. so disappointed that it looks just like a regular name. <laughs> I thought it was going to be like a space shuttle, uh-huh. and it was not. Well, they got like Turbo Hailer, I think, and stuff like that. For That might actually be Canadian, but yeah, they all look pretty pretty regular. Oh, I was so disappointed. Yeah. Cannot even stress my disappointment level. <laughs> and the box was even awesome. It came in this fancy <laughs> box, and I was like ready to open up, and I was just like, awesome. Regular <laughs> inhaler. <laughs> but it's okay. Still a good, still a good medication. Mm-hmm. So, what if we, let's just say, now we're playing a hypothetical game. If we needed to add on a third agent, what would we do at that point? Right. So, at that point, that's when we would look at the ICS, adding that on to the, to the Llama Lava. Um, yeah. Which now, there is, so you could just add on another inhaler. Is that what you were going for? Yeah, yeah let's ICS. talk about the, new, the newest kid on the block. Right. So the newest kid on the block is actually the triple therapy inhalers. And uh, there's a few in the pipeline, but the only one that's actually been approved is a brand name Trilogy. And it's another Ellipta, so that's just once a day. You can remember the Elliptas are pretty much always once a day. Dry powder inhaler, and it's a combination of imeclidinium, which is the llama, Volantrol, which is the lava, and then flutigazone for the ICS. So basically patients are able to get all of it in a one inhaler, one um, inhalation, once daily, which is pretty convenient. But what's the downfall? Price, probably. Probably the price, yeah. yeah. And it's still fairly new. I think it's come out in like the last four or five months. So, right. you know, I think that I haven't seen it. Have you seen it at all, April? I have not seen it. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't seen it at all, like on the market. I'm sure it's available, and, and I just haven't run any patients that are currently taking it. But uh, price insurance mm-hmm. companies, whether or not they cover it. And it's about 300 bucks, which doesn't sound as expensive as I kind of thought, but, um, I don't know. I guess if, if the insurance doesn't cover it, people aren't going to pay 300 bucks right. for an inhaler. So, but you know, I think the point of that is making sure that we're saving ICS kind of is the last form of, of inhalation anyway. Right. So go lava, llama, and then ICS instead of and that's the big change from the old guidelines where they kind of just said you can add this or switch this and they didn't really give direction this is very clear um, which path the guidelines recommend now obviously cost and all that stuff is, is a huge factor and we have to go with what's best for the patient or for whatever reason an anticholinergic or the, the llama you know they can't use for whatever reason i think that we have to take that into account but ideally we need to be looking at a llama, then a llama lava, and then adding the ICS third. Right. And when we're talking about guidelines and recommendations, generally we're talking about the ideal situation, but costs is generally the most significant issue um, and, and barrier to using one of these evidence-based uh, recommendations. But there are um, things you can do. And uh, even for people without insurance, I'm trying to remember what the... the um, there are some some states have programs that you can enroll them in that'll pay for the medications, um, but if not, then you just got to go with with the best you can, which is unfortunate. And a, a lot of times, at least this covers them for a, sh- a short period of time, maybe a year. Sometimes they extend the program longer, 
But if it's a non-federally funded insurance that the person has, or whether they maybe they don't even have insurance, there are most of these manufacturers and these drug companies do have a discount drug specifically available for these these inhalers. And uh, so if the person has Medicare, Medicaid, TRICARE, any of those, they're not going to be able to use them. Right. So make sure we're not offering those to patients that do have these federally funded programs. Right. But there are discount cards and coupon cards available. Right. And they're pretty much at the mercy of um, of their formulary. The physicians are who, who prescribe for patients yeah. with those insurances and things. Um, but that's just the way it is. I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. So Yeah. So what if we, let's say we had to add on a fourth agent. Um, do the guidelines address that at all? Um, do they? So yeah, they, they actually talk about reflumalast, yeah. yeah, Delarasp. And that is if a patient has a, an FEV less than 50%, um, and if they currently have chronic bronchitis as well, um, that makes them eligible for adding on Delarasp mm-hmm. if they're still having exacerbations while on triple therapy. Right. So I think the important thing to consider, one, Delarasp is expensive. Um, two, you're not going to stop mortality. You're not going to decrease mortality at all. You're just decreasing the amount of exacerbations. So Delarasp is not something you're going to add on to keep the person alive longer. Right. You're just giving them a better quality of life, so to speak. Right. Um, and then the other the other thing is the guidelines address um to the consideration of a macrolide if a patient is a former smoker. Yeah, how do you feel about that? Um, It it seems to me, you know, I don't think there's any mortality benefit behind that. It would be more about reducing exacerbations, maybe improving a little bit of quality of life. Um, But I feel like from a... Um, infectious disease standpoint or from a um, and microbial stewardship standpoint doesn't seem like the best idea no I mean I think uh, I think you if you asked five different people depending on what their specialty is you get different answers yeah um, I haven't seen a ton of really compelling evidence but um, I think there's enough that says we could that's why they say consider it right um, I understand the concept behind it I mean a macrolide your former smoker, they're going to be more susceptible to H flu, especially a current smoker, more uh, susceptible to Haemophilus influenza, um, grand negative bacteria. And also uh, the macrolides have anti-inflammatory properties as well. Right. So right. that's the reason they specifically go with macrolides mm-hmm. because the anti-inflammatory properties of, of a macrolide. Mm-hmm. Don't they use that in gastroparesis sometimes? <laughs> Erythromycin? I have or am to I look. I'm not. Speaking off the wall. Don't quote me on that, but I think they do. Quote them. <laughs> All right, what else for this young lady? So that's her COPD, but she also has hypertension. Uh, currently taking, we mentioned HTTZ, 25 milligrams. Her blood pressure today is like 135 over 84. Um, so you just, do you just want to leave it or you want to switch her around? So I think obviously this would depend patient to patient. She... 67 years old, it depends on what kind of health she's in, it depends on what her overall picture looks like. And you've probably heard us say this before, I think we've said in the last two podcasts, uh, we always go patient specific and like that particular patient and dealing with that and not just blanket statement, everyone needs to be treated to this. But, you know, with the new with the new blood pressure guidelines, they, you know, would recommend pushing the blood pressure lower. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, 130 over 80 would be very achievable with and her. If, and if you didn't know that... Go back to podcast episode one, and you'll yes. learn all about that. Exactly. All yes, about it. All about it. 
But the, uh, you know, the blood pressure goal, I think, would be very achievable. And I think we could do it very easily by switching her, her uh, HCTZ to an evidence-based thiazide diuretic. If she's doing well on the, on the thiazide, she's not having any side effects, then you know, I would say probably endapamide would be the one that I would go with. Mm-hmm. It's extremely cost-effective. I think it's on the $4 list at Walmart, and it, it's very, very cheap. And you're going to get a little bit better blood pressure-lowering effects. Uh, it's also had, besides being a thiazide diuretic, it has calcium channel blocker properties as well. And so that's where the more of the blood pressure lowering effects come into. It's not nearly as as dependent on renal function as something like hydrochlorothiazide or mm-hmm. chlorothaladone. And we have evidence with it. So we have the HIVET trial, which we've you've heard us talk about before. So HIVET looked at patients 80 to 100 years old. So she's a little bit too young to be included in that study. But we saw that there was mortality benefit in HIVET. And then also progress was post-stroke. They used indapamide as well. So I think in this particular patient, I would be comfortable switching her to indapamide, and I think that would drop the blood pressure a little bit lower and uh, kind of get her to goal. And as long as she wasn't having any side effects or any other issues, I think that would, would be a decent choice. And we could potentially prevent long-term con- conditions as well as where we don't have those same kind of cardiovascular outcome benefits with HCTZ. For sure. That'd be a great option. And um, speaking back to our uh, guideline podcast, they also mentioned chlorthalidone. So that would be be an option. But you talked about why, you know, we may consider endapamide over chlorthalidone. If you didn't want to do a diuretic or thiazide diuretic at all, maybe she's having electrolyte abnormalities and things like that. Um, so the next best option, since she is, we mentioned she's an African-American female, probably want to go with a um, calcium channel blocker in that instance. And, you know, generally patients are going to go, or people, physicians, uh, clinicians are going to go with amlodipine, mm-hmm. um, which is a good option. So, uh, at this point, you know, her blood pressures, it's, it's not too bad, but yeah, we'd like to see it below 130 if possible. Um, but I think the, the main consideration is maybe switching to something a little more evidence-based than, than HCTZ. Yeah. So here's a, uh, another kind of fun fact. Females, um, in general will metabolize the amlodipine a little bit I guess slower. You get a you get a more of a, a blood pressure lowering effect in females with amlodipine versus males, and so we need to take that into into consideration. So if I was going to switch her to amlodipine, I probably would start on five milligrams, judging on where her blood pressure is currently, instead of just jumping right to ten milligrams. Right. And she may even need to drop to a two point five. Right. Yeah. So that's that's something that we I think a lot of people don't take into consideration is you will get more blood pressure lowering with amlodipine with a female and you will a male right i think um i've heard that a consideration is uh, a female might respond to five milligrams like a male would respond to 10 milligrams yeah. so if you're expecting a certain amount of blood pressure lowering um from the five just realize that you might get double or something like that so just maybe a little more considerable but yeah that's pretty simple for her hypertension yeah what about um side effects with amlodipine since we're just talking random now so as far as the main thing that comes to mind for me would be probably edema you're going to get with the calcium channel blockers so yeah and if, if we have peripheral edema with the calcium channel blocker the the main thing to focus on is it's not a fluid retention problem causing the edema right so a lot of people want to put on like a loop diuretic Lasix, or a thiazide yeah. diuretic even to, to reduce some of that edema it won't work so the reason why we actually get that peripheral edema with the calcium channel blocker is because the 
amlodipine is dilating your, your precapillary bed. So you're getting intercapillary pressure will, will increase and you start to, to expand and can cause the swelling. So realistically, if we're going to add on another age, agent to reduce it, in this lady, I would say just switch it all together. But right. if we needed additional blood pressure lowering, we would add on an ACE inhibitor because that would dilate the postcapillary bed, reduce that intercapillary pressure, and the edema in theory should go away. Right. So make sure that if, you know that's kind of a, again a, a side side note, but if you see a patient who is having peripheral edema, make sure that you're not starting them on a loop diuretic to get rid of that because it's not going to work. Right, and there actually is a um, combination med called Latrell, which is actually pretty reasonably priced, and it's a combination of amlodipine and benazepril, so a CCB and an ACE. Um, which might be a good option for a patient in that situation to reduce the edema and just get them one pill instead of two. Yeah. So the other thing we've got to address real quick with this with this uh, lady is her uric acid levels because she has had a history of gout. So she is currently on allopurinol 30, uh, 300 milligrams daily, mm-hmm. and she has only had uh, one flare-up this year. And so... When she came into the clinic, she we got a uric acid level on her was six point two. So, Cole, what do you think about uric acid goals? Is there a preference? Yeah, so I guess it really depends. There's um, recently there's conflicting recommendations whether you want to get. Generally, it's been less than six. That's what they shoot for with the uric acid goals. American um, College of Rheumatology has been less than six for a long time. They're recommending less than six, but recently the um, is it American College of Physicians? Physicians, yeah. Physicians, they're saying it doesn't really matter what the uric acid level is. It's really about whether they're having flares or not. Um, so don't shoot for that goal of less than six. If they're controlled, then you may not need to go any lower. Is that the idea of what they're saying? Yeah. And, and that's based on some of these meta-analysis that they've done. You know, the evidence hasn't really shown the reason for the, the guidelines originally from the college of Rheumatology was because uric acid levels, if they exceed uh, 6.7, 6.8, the uric acid can precipitate out and cause these, these flares. And so what happens is, if we can control it to less than six, the thought process is we're not even getting close to that area where it's going to solubilize out and or precipitate out and, and cause a problem. So, you know, before we, we, we've kind of monitored levels and made patients go, but these, the meta-analyses that have examined patients that have had their levels checked, we haven't really seen a decrease in flares necessarily by trying to push a, a patient's uric acid levels down. I, I've talked to some patients who have had flares in the past and they say absolutely 100%. There's no way they're going to go above six, and they are very happy with getting their uric acid levels checked because they never want to have a flare again. So I, again, I think it's patient specific. If it helps the patient see a number, if it helps the physician or whoever the provider is that's treating them, uh, it's kind of judge on whether or not they need to go up on the medication or not. I think that um, you can still definitely pull uric acid levels. So for her, she hasn't had a flare in a while, right? Right. And her uric acid is like 6.2. She's on allopurinol 300. Um, would you want to increase? I, I probably would just keep it as is. Yeah. Now, the other thing to consider is allopurinol. It, we can go up to 800 milligrams. Right. So I wouldn't add on anything at this point. Uh, there's a new drug out there called uh, lisinurad. Um, Zerampic, I think, is the brand mm-hmm. name. Yeah. And that's a, a URAP1 inhibitor. So it, it blocks the reuptake of uric acid in the kidney and blocks that transporter. And you can add it on to allopurinol as long as it's used 
with, along with allopurinol 300 milligrams or more. And so the issue with that though, is there's been some AKI with it and some other issues. You, you certainly have to worry about kidney injury if you ever use it by itself. So I'm not a huge fan of Zerampic. I've actually never seen anybody on it currently. Neither have I. Have you, April, at all? I have never seen that. Yeah, so I, I think that it's something that's not going to be used very much. They have a combination product now right? Um, with Alpurinol and Zerampic together, but I just don't... I think that too many people will not increase the allopurinol like they're supposed to. Because again, 800 milligrams of allopurinol is the max dose. And you very, very, very rarely see anyone on that. Right. So I think with her, honestly, I would leave her gout alone. I would yeah. I would just leave it for now. And then if she started having more uh, flares, right. then we could consider adding something. And honestly, you know, for her, I would consider more of like a, a colchazine daily cultures okay. you use um, if I was going to add something. So colchazine we'll see a lot of times in flares because it will con- con- it will control the, the neutrophil response to this uric acid uh, precipitation. And so when you get your neutrophils migrating to that location, it can cause more inflammation and more pain. So if you can stop them from being able to have that migration to the site, you can control the flare that way and control the inflammation and, and inflammatory response. So colchicine will oftentimes be used in flares. And one of the reasons why we always used to stay away from allopurinol during a flare or starting it was because of something called mobilization gout is a, is a term for it. I think it's kind of an older term, but mobilization gout. And that's where if we were to first lower the uric acid levels after a flare or during a flare, your body wants to get back to homeostasis. So it thinks that your uric acid levels are too low. So it can release some of your uric acid stores and then just precipitate another flare. And so oftentimes they would hold back on either continuing the allopurinol or, or beginning the allopurinol if the patient wasn't on it because of, of mobilization gout. And they would just have them on colchazine or an NSAID or, or like corticosteroid, like prednisone. But the, the thing we can do to kind of combat that mobilization gout is just give colchazine at the same time. And so if the uric acid levels do start to rise and you were to precipitate another flare, the colchazine would stop the, the response and control the inflammatory response as well. So you would kind of hit it from both angles. And you'll actually see people on, especially people who have like TOFI or, or other conditions that put them at high risk for having a flare, you'll have people on colchazine daily to kind of control that response in the event of a of an attack. <clears throat> and really, colchazine can even be taken uh, twice a day for months at a time to control those symptoms. But it is something you have to be monitored. Drug-drug interactions um, are common, looking out for things like diltiazem, verapamil, atorvastatin, I believe, has some interactions with it. So definitely some things to consider. But for this young lady, that was, again, way more information than y'all needed. But I think for her... <laughs> Um, I would just keep it as is without purinol. And then if she started having more flares, I would consider maybe like a colchazine daily for a couple months to get her under control. Seems reasonable. You can always make dietary recommendations as well. Yes, there you go. very Some true. Some of the dietary associations with a gout flare, um, alcohol, caffeine, well, coffee, um, meats, uh, vitamin C, sweetened beverages. Absolutely. Purine-rich foods. Aspirin. Yes. Right. Yes, any purine-rich foods like that. That's, that's a good call. I, realized that I get talking uh, too much about the medications used and, and not enough about 
dietary restrictions or right. lifestyle management. And I think that's always important in any disease state. And I had a light bulb. Doesn't HCTZ, can't that precipitate yeah. gout attacks? Diuretics can. Yeah, Diuretics can. can. Well, so, there you go. There we go. Yeah, it's a good call. Okay, well. So, and yeah, good job, Cole. Thanks. I didn't think about that either, yeah. but yes, absolutely. And um, so maybe indepamide is not the best yeah. option. And maybe we need to go ahead and CCB? stick her on amlodipine. Uh, okay. And we're all guidelined up. Yes. All yes. evidence based. I like it. I like it's it. It's a good deal. Good. What do you think, April? Just the I like most it. funny thing <laughs> I've had doing a podcast. Absolutely. Yes. Excellent. Awesome. So that's pretty much it for her major disease states. But, you know, as, as pharmacists, we're always thinking preventative medicine. So she's indicated for some immunizations, right? Something yeah. we could give her. Yeah, let's run through immunizations real quick. Sure. So if she hasn't had any, we did this last week too, but if she hasn't had any, um, what are we giving her first? Flu's good. Flu's good. Might as well go ahead and still get it. They're still recommending it. Pneumococcal, she's rec- she's indicated for those. She's over 67, so you'd go ahead and do Prevnar first, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then a year later, you can do Pneumovax, uh, Shingrix, shingles vaccine. She's indicated yep. for that. Um, Which we have in stores now. Yes. Oh, really? We don't get it till the end of the month. So it's coming. It's good that other people have it. Yes. <laughs> Go somewhere where they have it. Um, anything else? No, I mean, if I heard you like TDAP, if she yeah, doesn't have TDAP one, boost, give her a tetanus booster or a TDAP if she's never had one. But yeah, I think that's that, that pretty much covers it. So yeah, that's patient case number two. Awesome. Amazing how we can take a really simple case and just talk about it. Yeah, for talk a long about time. it for way too long. Y'all learned a lot, hopefully. hopefully. Tell us if you did. Either that or you turned us off and right. we're doing something else. <laughs> so you're not listening anymore anyway. So, <laughs> But that's fine. Yes. To each his own. Yes. But uh, yeah, we'll have the patient case uploaded uh, on on the website. Yep, it'll be at coreconsultrx.com slash podcast singular. I think I said plural last podcast, but it is slash podcast and singular not s at the end yes so we'll have that on there so you can follow along if you, you would like um we would also definitely like your feedback or recommendations if you would do something different or if you're like no that's the dumbest idea ever we should do this medication or mm-hmm. this therapy i'm all ears uh, i think i'd actually really enjoy to hear you know what you have to say but make sure you can you can back it up with evidence because that way we can share that with the group as For well sure. and and kind of further everyone's knowledge definitely and so obviously this was case uh numero dos number two uh, we want to do more and we don't want y'all to just hear what we're coming up with so if you have a cool case if you have something that you're like hmm this was super interesting i didn't really know what to do uh but it was resolved or even if it's not resolved and you want some you know want us to talk about it and see what we would do send it to us um you can contact us on facebook contact us on twitter on instagram um at coreconsultrx uh, you could email us m m is in mary corvino at coreconsultrx.com. Uh, shoot us an email, contact us, and we'll get in touch. And if we like it, we'll probably go through it in a podcast. Yes, so, especially like make it complex. Yeah, like, really, really complex. Let's get in, awesome. de- in depth for sure. That would be good. Make sure, uh, like you said, follow us on all the major social media platforms. Uh, we try to put out different content on each platform. Instagram is we use primarily for charts and different reminders on certain drugs and things like that and then snapchat we're going to be doing a lot of like daily quizzes questions on pharmacotherapy so i mean and the more i work with pas at the pa school i'm going to hopefully have a lot more content for uh, pa type questions that'll help you with the pants exam and i think that uh snapchat's gonna really take off anyway so why not use it for why not learning some stuff Mm, flash briefings Yes, if you have an Alexa, 
please check out the Core Console RX flash briefing. Uh, it gets updated, I'm not going to say daily, but almost. Most, almost daily. Every day I say, Alexa, tell me my flash briefing. I wait for, for Mike's voice to come on there. And yeah, about every day. If it's yeah. not like 24 hours, it'd be like 36-ish. Yeah, but, there you, you know. go. We'll see it every 36 hours. Yeah, we'll <laughs> Something like that. But yeah, so flash briefing, really, really easy way. If you don't have time to listen to the entire podcast, definitely check out the flash briefing. And again, any feedback that you can give, I am all ears. All of us want to hear the feedback so we can either change things or, or improve somehow. So let me know. And I really appreciate you taking the time to listen and look forward to hearing from you. Thanks.